0: You know, I've always liked applied work, and I definitely want to think about how does this, uh, how does anything we do affect a cow-calf producer, or a cow or calf themselves?
1: A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple podcast show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Biovers, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University. And our guest today is from the University of Missouri, Dr. Allison Meyer. She is an associate professor of ruminant nutrition and nutritional physiology at the University of Missouri. She grew up in a small pure red cow calf operation, which sparked her lifelong passion for science and agriculture. Allison completed her BS in animal science from Michigan State in 2005. M.S. in Ruminant Nutrition from the University of Missouri in 2007 and Ph.D. in Nutritional Physiology at North Dakota State University in 2011. After serving as an assistant professor at the University of Wyoming from 2011 to 2013, Allison returned to the University of Missouri in 2013 in a research teaching tenure track appointment. She was promoted to associate professor in 2019 and served as director of graduate studies in animal sciences from 2019 to 2021. Allison's long-term research goal is to improve nutritional management of beef females through scientific understanding of their nutrient partitioning to calves. The Meyer Lab conducts research focusing on effects of late gestational nutrient balance on pre-weaning calf metabolism and health, spanning from applied system cow-calf work to small intestinal and blood flow mechanisms. She's published more than 39 peer-reviewed papers and over 140 abstracts, receiving almost 2 million in funding from federal, including USDA NEFA and industry, industry sources, given over 45 invited scientific and industry presentations, trained several graduate students, and has involved more than 30 undergraduate or veterinary students in her research. So welcome to the show Allison.
0: Thanks, Stephanie. It's great to be on.
1: So I have to say that the first time I met Allison, well, what, what did you call me? You said I was a baby master student, and you were a baby f- future master student. When I was working with Jerry Spears at NC State, you showed up for a tour, and apparently I epically failed on the tour because you did not go to work with Jerry Spears.
0: You did not epically fail. I just realized that I wasn't as big of a mineral nerd as you.
1: Oh, well, that's hard to compete with.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is. It is. It is. <laughs>
1: Okay, so geographically, you've kind of bounced all over the place. You went from sort of the northern tier down to the south and back up again, um, but have ultimately landed kind of back home there at one of your alma maters at the University of Missouri. So tell us your story. How did you end up back there?
0: Well, I mean, big picture, you gave my bio well. I, I assume I wrote that. It seemed, seemed like something I would write. Um, but I'll say that, you know, I learned through being in a lot of different places that what really matters to me is being somewhere where beef cows matter and there are four seasons and rain falls from the sky. Um, And that's both from a personal standpoint. I I like living in places that are, um, you know, a little more uh, able to support life. I like to grow plants and things like that. Um, But also I like I like to be in this part of the country because I'm close enough to family and yet I'm still where cows really matter. Um, I grew up where row crops and, and hogs were definitely much more important than cattle. And so, although I loved growing up in South Central Indiana, you know, I, I knew that that wasn't really a place that I was probably going to return. And so this is a nice, a nice happy medium here at Mizzou to be in an important cow-calf state. That's pretty, gets four seasons. When I'm annoyed with one season, we can get the next one. Um, and, you know, has a lot of great opportunity from a career standpoint.
1: Absolutely. And obviously lots of rolling Hills, lots of cow country there in Missouri. And as being just the one tier North of you, we bring in a lot of like fall calving cows. So we'll bring those calves into Iowa to some of our feedlots and things like that. So although I have a friend who now lives in Missouri and she mostly describes it as tick season and not tick season.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, that is something that um, I often have to to teach my more northern students that you know when you walk across a pasture beginning, or essentially once the grass is past your shoe, you you have to take precautions. But um, yeah, I'll say that another thing I didn't mention that I really love about this part of the country is I I grew up mostly spring calving but having some fall calving and I really always found both seasons interesting and to me and a lot of the kind of work i do a lot of times they don't get compared and we mostly focus on spring cavers for boss Taurus research and so it's really nice to have that opportunity and of course as a wide-eyed you know baby assistant professor i was like i could calve cows twice in a year this is the best thing ever um and so you know that's a, another great aspect of being here
1: That is so true. You know, one of the biggest challenges with comparing seasonal operations is that there are not very many places where you can have a spring calving herd and a fall calving herd and not have one of them be a train wreck, right? So there are certain parts of the country that really only thrive in one of those two seasons. So that's a really nice comparison to be able to say, if you are very heavily pregnant during the peak heat of the summer, what is the implication of that versus being very heavily pregnant versus the worst coldest day of January. <laughs>
0: totally. And that's, um, we actually recently published a data set comparing uh, four spring and for fall calving seasons here. Um, and it really came from a student of mine from Wisconsin who came in and said, I only have dealt with spring calving, fall calving is so weird. And I had been thinking, oh, we might eventually get to the point we have enough data to really compare them. And, you know, that was one of the the most fun, I think, data analyses I've I've done ever is because, you know, it's a a question that hasn't been asked that much. As you said, it's difficult to do. There's a lot of messiness in it, but um, I think we were able to, you know, learn some things that can help producers if nothing else, you know, know that their gut instincts are correct about about some of the things they think they know, um, which I always think is an important aspect of research.
1: So do you want to share with us maybe a couple of the findings that you thought were really like, what were some of the things that were really different between fall calving and spring calving?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, our, our general dogma that calves born in the fall are smaller was, was correct in this study as well. Um, I'll say that you know, it's always difficult to control for genetics in these things, right? And I don't know if we had as big of difference as we would have, because I think many times fall calving herds in this part of the country are really not selecting for calving ease quite as hard, given that we know that between heat and fescue, we're going to take some birth weight and some gestation length like out of calves. Um, so that was pretty much as we expected, but when we we really focused a lot on what was happening in neonatal calves, and again, this isn't surprising, but there's not much data out there. Um, the calves that were born in the spring, and to us, spring was mostly February. Um, the average calving date, I think, was around Valentine's Day. They, of course, those calves were colder um, early in life, and they then ended up. Mobilizing a lot of fat resources. They had kind of wonky glucose values. Essentially, they looked metabolically stressed. And in fact, they looked more metabolically stressed in ways that we didn't expect, given that most of them did not have dystocias at birth, but they showed signs like calves that did. On the other hand, our fall calves metabolically were in great shape, but then got a bit dehydrated. And, um, Seemed in some ways to have less access to nutrients. I think maybe fall colostrum doesn't have as many nutrients. But we didn't have quite enough colostrum data to compare those. So, um, really, as we look at it, you know, spring born calves have a better, a better environment during pregnancy, but then they come out into a bad environment. Fall born calves have a more challenging environment during pregnancy, but they come out into an environment that is more like what they're used to and what they want. Um, And we actually didn't see them start to act heat stressed until they were about two or three days old. There's this danger period from like three days, I think, to probably 10, where I call them having broken thermostats. Um, We mentioned it a little bit in the paper. We've got some other data that we'd like to continue to mess with. But um, essentially, calves in heat that don't have access to shade aren't very good at dissipating heat. And they also aren't very good at... Um, you know, realizing that they should get out of the sun or that they should get up and nurse. And so I think they start off a little dehydrated and then they get hot and then it just all gets worse from there.
1: Yeah, so many interesting things there. So I fall calved for about five seconds. And in Iowa, fall calving often means late summer calving, right? That's what we actually mean. We mean like August. Um, and the only reason I did it was because heat stress the year before I had like basically had the cows had gotten bred, several lost them. And then I ended up being sliding back. Right. And it was terrible because I was just, you know, that you're right. They're too dumb to get up and realize they shouldn't just be standing in the heat, even if they had shade and then they would be all, you know, sunken in and dehydrated. And it's amazing to see how poorly a job they can do at regulating that heat load. And that, you know, I would say even 30 to 45 days of age and stuff, they're still not very good at it.
0: Yeah. It's amazing at some point. So the way that we really, um, have learned more about that was taking a lot of rectal temps from a lot of calves. And, um, I'll say that it's interesting somewhere in that like 10 day to two week period they're they'll still look kind of hot and they'll still act hot, but their rectal temps will regulate. So, um, we can get rectal temps. I mean, I've I've taken personally rectal temps that are over 106 from calves that had no infection, uh, that were just really hot. And, you know, after that, then they get back in that 103 to 104, probably where their mamas are. You know, I mean, on September 1st or 10th, um, in this part of the country, it can be the hottest day of the year, one of them, right? And so we know that at 5 p.m., all of the cattle who are in the sun are going to have elevated temperatures. Um, but it's interesting how much higher those calves can get. And I'll say that we tried a lot of different things to mitigate it. But really, the best thing was forcing them into shade. And so we we developed kind of a creep shade protocol. And I think that that probably... Um, you know is is one of the things that i least expected i kind of knew from dealing with it and watching some calves but i thought i just happened to have dealt with the dumbest ones you know as a <laughs> as a, a kid and it turns out that actually i think that's a, a real thing and why i mean i tell most of our producers if you can calve um if you can can calve your falls knowing that they're often august or september's in under trees that's really the best option because cows usually will go seek out that sort of area to calve. And I think, you know, they can take care of a lot of that if they can put a calf in a good place.
1: Yeah, that's so true. So my other follow-up question, you maybe hinted that you don't have enough data yet, but you suggested that maybe colostrum and maybe even does early milk look different then but for the fall calving cow versus the spring calving cow?
0: I think it's really possible. There's, there's some dairy data to say that, you know, probably that's true. But of course, when we think about it, you know, most of that is coming from grazing dairies. And so it's hard to tell how much of it's nutritional. Um, I'm assuming the thing with our fall and and spring that I've told to a lot of people is that, you know, we are interested in those nutritional differences because we know they're managed differently. Um, I think a lot of it does depend on how we're managing them because definitely drought, you know, a droughty summer and heat, and fescue toxicosis are different than, you know, plenty of grass and heat and fescue tox. Um, the same thing goes with, you know, grazing nice, stuck-piled fescue or decent hay or hay with supplement are not the same as bad fescue hay um, over winter for a spring calving cow. An interesting thing to me about watching them is that I think, and this is this is pure conjecture, but we take a lot of, a lot of colostrum out of a lot of cows and heifers. And a lot of times the falls are more likely to have really, th- really thick colostrum that is, you know, there's not a lot of volume, but the nutrient and IG concentrations are really high and I'm not sure anyone else, but me really cares enough for us to figure it out. I don't know if anyone will give me the money for it, but um. I've been interested in, in why that occurs even our, our animals that we feed individually under roof um, make a greater volume of colostrum than those that are out on pasture even if they're all calving at the same body condition and I'm assuming some of that might be a hydration bit but I'm I just I just don't really know and I don't again I don't think most people care that much. The good news is is that calves are getting uh, a lot of nutrients and a lot of Ig. But the thing that worries me about those fall born calves is that they're not getting much water. And then, many times, if we think about the kinds of water sources that we have, I know in the calving pens, we usually use their ball drinkers. And so, calves aren't drinking. Whereas, you know, in our individual intake barn, we have open waters, and I watch baby calves drink very quickly in life. And so, I actually also think that probably we need to offer. Like We need to make sure that there's water for fall calves that they can get to because I I think that's also making the heat stress worse.
1: Yeah, that's so true. I have an automatic water system, and the calves figure it out pretty quickly because it's not a ball system. They just had to either kind of push the thing down or now I have one that's just an open bowl. Um, But I always... Um, when I have young babies later in the summer, I just have developed this habit of having a smaller water that the little suckers mostly just like to stand in. I have like, I feel sometimes in the summer, half of my Instagram posts is something about dirty water and a calf standing in it. Right. <laughs> um, but they're, they they do, they, they drink a lot and the cows will come over to it sometimes too, but like it's the calves that really come to that. So yeah, I, I like your dehydration comment. I wonder about the vitamin content too of that. If we think about, fall calving cows, we typically think they've had longer green grass exposure. So we would expect better vitamin A, vitamin E kind of in that colostrum. And that's so important for that newborn calf to consume that because there's very little placental transfer of that. But then the flip of that might be the trace minerals. And so I think, you know, maybe we have more of those problems in the spring calving than we do in the fall calving if they've seen grass. But I don't know about you, my grass has been out by July 1st, the last few years. So... (laughs)
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll say that we, until this last summer, we'd had a few pretty good summers here where we had a lot of volume. It was just really, you know, pretty low quality, um, pretty high fiber, low protein. But I think you're right. um, Especially after, uh, after listening to some of the, the talks from um, the Janowski lab, what is her PhD student's name that I talked to? Yes. We had a long hallway conversation about this and I would love to, um, measure some of our vitamin A and some of our, our different um, colostrum and milk samples. We do we measured uh, trace minerals in a study that was, was sponsored by Novus, but we also recently got a gift from Zimpro to measure some um, trace mineral concentrations over time. So we have some colostrum samples where we, we, we took all of the colostrum from the gland right after calving, and then every 12 hours for a total of four sampling. So essentially we'd taken the calves from the dams for a different um, objective. And I wanted to watch how colostrum changed because I can't find any of that data in beef cows except for one Irish study and they only presented um, immunoglobulins. And so trace minerals, I'll say in those samples go down very fast, just as you'd expect. Um, and I think, you know, we're hoping, I mean, we've got a lot more of those samples. There's a lot of things we could do with those. Um, but there's a lot more questions like that, that honestly, um, the more I deal with colostrum, and I was fascinated by it as a kid, but the more I deal with it, the more I realized that we don't know much about beef cow colostrum. We often assume that dairy cows are the same. They're not because they've diluted their colostrum so much and their calves are in such different scenarios that, you know, we're really dealing with it, a different, a different set of questions altogether. And so, um, actually I just submitted a a small grant to ask some of the questions of the very simple questions using a lot of our data, because we now have enough samples that we can start to put some things together over years. And I think answer some things about passive transfer and calves, but also how many nutrients the colostrum is providing because we usually get all excited about antibodies and we should. But my current pocket theory is that I think probably beef calves are getting enough IG as long as they consume colostrum because most beef cow and heifer colostrum I've ever dealt with has plenty of IG. Um, But it doesn't always have plenty of energy or plenty of protein and especially when we think about our calves in challenging environments like cold stress maybe even heat stress um you know they they don't have a lot of their own energy stores that they can fall back on and if they're not consuming it it's coming from somewhere to stay warm enough and we ask them to take care of themselves from birth pretty much right
1: right So, yeah, I think the colostrum stuff, that's such a great point, Allison. that we don't have really good, any good, any good information. Um, I guess one of my follow-up questions would be, you've obviously done a lot of work with nutrient restriction during different phases of gestation. So have you looked at that in your colostrum questions and said, like, if you had a, you know, 60% or whatever percent nutrient restriction, does that impact what's in the colostrum?
0: Yeah. So from our, um, from our last two studies that that we did with USDA, um, we had decreased yield of colostrum by 40 or 35%, depending on which study it was in our nutrient restricted heifers. Now those were heifers that were fed to 70% of their energy and protein requirements for the last 120 days of pregnancy. So really they were nutrient restricted in the last third of pregnancy by the time they realized they were restricted. Um, Interestingly, you know, I expected about that difference. It's really similar to my PhD work with sheep at NDSU. Um, But what I didn't expect is that those those nutrient-restricted heifers actually had super concentrated immunoglobulins. And they also had no difference in fat concentration. Now, fat is super variable in colostrum. Um, It's not very easy to measure. DHA does a terrible job. We just had a technical note came out that that showed we finally figured out how to measure all these things but um big picture what was really affected in that colostrum negatively was lactose so nutrient restricted heifers had less circulating glucose they made less lactose that drove the yield Um, you know some people have said well does that really matter but i'll say that less lactose to a baby calf is a big deal because that is a really quick, good source of energy for them. And although they can turn on gluconeogenesis really fast, some people think they're starting to, you know, at the end fetal stages, some think it's right after birth somewhere in that, that range. Um, you know, again, they don't have a lot of precursors and they really need, they need a good lactose hit fast and that's a quicker form of energy than, than fat. Um, but, I'll say that, you know, in those calves what we did is we we take us a whole quarter of of colostrums. We take the most full single or rear quarter, so just a single quarter. We take all of it so we can get a yield and we found that, you know, that's that represents about 85% of the variation in the the full colostrum yield and so we feel like that gives us a really good indication of you know, what total yield would have been, but it also gives the calf three of the quarters and they can nurse normally because, you know, if we took all the colostrum and then we tubed the calf, we would miss anything that we changed with vigor or development. And so in that study, we actually found that, you know, both control and nutrient restricted um, calves had adequate passive transfer. In fact, they were way above adequate. The nutrient restricted, um, you know, had a little more serum IG, but they were so high, it didn't really matter. Um, my take is that because the colostrum was so concentrated, their first meal, they really got most of the IG and it was when their gut could still really absorb it. Whereas those control calves had colostrum over a longer period. And so you know they got less, they got some IG in multiple meals. Um, and we've actually found really similar similar results in heifers so far, except that heifers versus cows made a lot less colostrum. Like they made about a quarter of the colostrum as cows that were managed together in one study. Um, It's a relatively small data set that wasn't controlled uh, in nutrition. They just, you know, grazed together and were supplemented a little bit. Um, But we have another funded um, USDA project where we will feed heifers and cows in Kalen gates so that we can can ask some of those same questions. There's lots of questions to that one, but one of the ones I'm most interested in is really um, looking at colostrum yield in that point. What we found though is that those heifers had, again, super concentrated Ig, and so their calves actually did quite well with passive transfer, um, which we did not expect given how little colostrum they had.
1: So you were talking about lactose being um, limiting in the nutrient-restricted cows too, and that has effects on things besides just energy, right? So lactose affects the permeability of the gut to certain nutrients like calcium, for example, so they'll have better calcium absorption if they've had something like lactose come through there. Um, I've also seen a couple of things I was going to ask you um, about transition milk, so that not the colostrum, but not into regular milk, transition milk, and how it impacts like gut development. Have you guys looked at that at all or seen some of those more recent studies? Yeah, so I have seen some of that dairy work, and I I think it's really interesting.
0: Um, So we have not asked that question yet in beef calves, but I will say that um, we have a bunch of frozen colostrum and transition milk from that study I mentioned, everything we didn't sample to analyze we essentially composited by treatment, thinking that we might want to ask some of those questions someday. From the dairy perspective, you know, it makes really good sense to me that, um, you know, there's probably a, a little more in the way of nutrient content in that transition milk. Of course, some some dairies are going to consider transition milk to also include, you know, more of actual colostrum, just kind of depends what they're using. Um, and I'll say that, you know, there's so many things we don't understand about what's in colostrum from a bioactive factor, you know, maternal cells, that sort of thing. In in really, you know, we don't we don't get it much in beef colostrum, but my assumption is is that it's so much greater because everything is greater because there's less water. And so, you know, we have some samples in the minus eighty that I guard with my life, thinking that at some point we're going to ask some of those questions um, because you know. We just, we don't know a lot. And yet, obviously, there's there's a lot of important things that are happening then.
1: I just pictured like a fire drill in your building and you like make all your students like, everybody grab a box from the freezer.
0: <laughs> um, we've had those conversations before. Uh, I'm known to grab, you know, my laptop and my external hard drive and run out because we're, you know, <laughs> before pre-cloud, we were worried about losing some stuff. But uh, the, the most recent conversation was... So the the new ultra low, it's probably you know pretty safe in like a fire or something. And I was like, I love that. That's the I love that's the conversation.
1: We could throw it out the window and it would be safe. Look like out below. It at least rolls well.
0: I think we could roll it
1: out. <laughs> Okay, so we've kind of jumped into the lactation in the classroom story, but let's take that back a step because really what your lab has been taking a leadership role in in the country has been looking at kind of the long-term effects, right? So if we have cows who experience nutrient restriction during a phase of gestation, what are the ultimate implications? So I know you've been presenting some of these data lately at some of the meetings. We saw it at Midwest Animal Science recently in Madison. So tell us a little bit about that USDA funded project
0: sure so this is something that um, i sometimes get made fun of by people in my lab for this but you know i've been thinking about this project since i was a phd student because in one way or another it got submitted you know lots of times before it, it got funded and got done but in my mind i thought we really needed to have a a good kind of in some ways, plain Jane study and that we weren't trying to fix anything, but trying to really learn what's going on in nutrient restriction or during nutrient restriction and late gestation. So we used heifers because I think heifers are the most likely to be negatively impacted given that they're still growing and they've never been pregnant before. They've never lactated before. So they're really growing the uterus and mammary gland for the first time, but also because in my mind, I think that it can be easy to forget about late pregnant heifers on a farm or ranch. Not that we don't care about them. It's just that they're not that needy. We didn't have to wean calves from them. They got pregnant. We might have even been worried that we got them a little too fat during development. And I think we probably, you know, a lot of the, the book values in NRC and the old 2000 model, probably those numbers are kind of, Eh, low. And so I think it's, it's, it's certainly possible that we can forget about them. Also, if we kick them out with cows, they can't compete with cows. And so that's another easy way for them to get behind. So essentially what we did, like I mentioned, is we fed them to 70% of their energy and protein requirements during that last four months of pregnancy, or we fed them to meet those. And we didn't mess with minerals or vitamins, um, because, we really wanted to just ask the protein-energy question, um, and so in the first study, we kept um, the calves through weaning and then the feedlot. In the second study, that's one where we, we took the calves from from the heifers right at birth. We raised them for 48 hours, and then we killed the calves and collected lots of samples. But especially, we're very gut focused because of my interest in that area. The first one is probably my favorite animal work that we've ever done because um, we also then were able to keep those heifers, now first calf heifers, we managed them um, to meet their their nutrient requirements during lactation, still in the Kalen gates for 150 days. So calves couldn't get to anything really but milk. So we we measured milk, you know, lactation for quite a while. We measured a lot of things in calves, we put them into to big pens together. And then we kept managing those heifers together and we continued to collect some data throughout their second pregnancy and lactation to ask if nutrient restriction during their first pregnancy impacted them later in life. And so, you know, from all of that, we've collected a ton of different things, um, maybe luckily or unluckily, depending on how you look at it. The, the pregnancy and lactation, early lactation portions of that happened in 2020. So we didn't have much else to do. And it was a little stressful, but we had a lot of work to do. <laughs> so um, those, those heifers, they're 8,500 series. So if you hear my lab talk about the 85s and how perfect they are, that's them um, because they – They were really a great set of heifers and now cows to work with. And so what we've learned from that is in the first study, we didn't change birth weight with nutrient restriction. And the second we did, turns out that's about what you get in the literature. About half the time we do, half the time we don't. To me, that's one of the most interesting questions. I always ask, how do some cows manage to make it work when they have less nutrients? And um, I've been interested in that I mean, literally since probably I was a a teenager, um, but in that set of that first set of heifers, they made it work. They, you know, calved at about an average of a, a three and a half, four body condition score. So they were really thin. Um, but they made calves that were the same size. Those calves though, were less vigorous at birth. So they took longer to stand and, um, they also were a little altered metabolically. They had less red blood cells. They looked a little more stressed. Um, they were more likely to have an abnormal presentation at birth. So we had one backwards um, and two, you know, one leg only or one like a shoulder or a leg back, um, which out of thirteen, you know, we weren't quite statistically powered to um, to ask that question, but. There's some old, old data that suggests that that's probably a thing, that nutrient-restricted females or fetuses might actually not get the turn quite right. So we thought that was interesting.
1: Um, let, me and jump, go ahead. let me jump in and ask a question about that. So do you think that's... Do you think it's a gut fill difference is when you have your restriction do they still have like just a lot of really poor quality hay but the just the nutrient load is different or is there a gut fill difference that like that fetus is getting shoved into the right place if the right amount of gut fill is there
0: good question so our study we took the approach of feeding really low quality hay that we supplemented and so actually our hay intake was similar for both treatments and um, ad lib intake of this, it was a really mature sorghum sudan that honestly was about this much better than corn stalks. Um, you know, the nutrient restricted females could not get up to requirements with only that. And so they both got some supplement. And we formulated the supplements individually every day to make sure that we were essentially getting back up to the target of 70% or 100%. Um, and so, They were full, the nutrient restricted, you know, heifers, I think their bodies knew they were starving, but they didn't because they were always full. They were always chewing their cuds. You know, they didn't try to eat the fences or anything. Um, And so, you know, that definitely is different from some studies where they're feeding a TMR and we probably have a lot of differences in gut size. As somebody who has measured a lot of pregnant, especially you guts, that's something I always think about. Unfortunately, we can't really ask that question without killing them. And so we didn't. Um, my take would be that probably gut volume wasn't that different, but we certainly, especially small intestinal and I think maybe ruminal epithelial function and you know the density of the tissue, like mucosal density, probably were a bit different just because even though we weren't reducing um, volume of feed, nutrient availability was quite different. Um, but we were really trying to keep, like I said, ad lib intake, passage rate pretty similar. Um, to me, that is more representative of what's happening in the real world. And we also knew that it was important not to have those, those females be any more stressed or causing trouble because you know that's something when you talk to other people who have done these sorts of studies. You know, if if your nutrient restrictive females are really mad and they're constantly getting out and eating something, it doesn't really get your treatment across. And um, and I don't like it, especially when pregnant females are unhappy. Um, like I always yell at people who try to run pregnant cows. I'm like, no, no, no. We let them walk at the speed they want to. I, you know, they get to choose. And so I'll say that that was a lot of our, our perspective. There's lots of ways to do it, but I think it worked out pretty well
1: in the end. Yeah. I think the nutrient restriction thing is so, such a hard thing to test and you're right. You know, I feed a limit fed high concentrate diet to my cows, like in confinement during the winter. Right. So, and it's because of a labor challenge and I don't have big equipment to move hay bales and stuff really readily. So I limit feed hay and I, you know, so it, but there's enough gut fill there and stuff that they're not trying to go through the fences and stuff like that. But let me tell you, you know, the second that you're below that gain, that thing, right? Because in the winter, no hot wire is going to hold a cow back because there's not enough, not enough zing to it. Okay. So my other question was, we've talked to Travis Molinix before on the podcast. And, um, you know, he's talked a little bit about this idea of like metabolic flexibility. And I think he mentioned that like maybe his advisor had told him like body condition scores are essentially an energy supplement waiting to be utilized, but some cows are, maybe better at it than others. So I was thinking about your comment that birth weight is sometimes affected by nutrient restriction and sometimes not. Have you observed if that's tied to the ability of mama to mobilize resources better than others?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll say that um, in our two studies, and it's true that they didn't have it at the same time, you know, one was in 2020, one was in 2021. The females were out of the same cow herd but different bulls, you know, like we can't truly... Compare them, but you know the change in body condition score was quite similar in the the groups overall, and so I'm not sure that I can say that that's 100%. It you know from a sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't, but I'll say that um, you know anecdotally, a lot of the the nutrient restricted females who gave birth to the biggest calves and still had quite a bit of colostrum and made a lot of milk. You know, were some of the thinnest. Is that random? I doubt it. Um, I can think of you know my favorite cow growing up, who was kind of like that—always thin, always milked a lot, always had one of the first calves every year. Um, you know, had twins at ten and years eight of age and could handle it. Um, I think that that those are some of the questions that would definitely be really interesting. Um, to ask and to me as someone who has certainly dabbled in feed efficiency a lot um, you know something that that I have wondered more and more throughout the years is actually I, I truly believe we probably are thinking about efficiency wrong. Um, most of the time cows are not in a situation necessarily where they get to choose how many nutrients they eat Many times they just have to figure out how they're going to deal with, poor nutrient availability. And so I think some partition nutrients differently in a nutrient limited environment than others. And it probably has something to do with how much they, they use for maintenance themselves, but it may have something to do with, you know, a set point of where they want to be body condition score wise, or, you know, whether they prioritize themselves over their calves. I think some of them are, you know, martyrs and they take care of their calves above themselves. Um, And we, there's a lot of questions we could ask about it scientifically, but unfortunately, I don't, I don't think we know enough now to really be able to answer that.
1: Well, I think that sets up really well for a conversation that we wanted to be able to have here. So we mentioned Travis, who's at UNL and your program there. Um, I focus a lot on what I like to call the modern feedlot animal, right? And I like to quote the Capper data from 2011 that says, you know, feedlot cattle gained 44% more in 2007 than they did in 1977. It's, It's not the same beast. And yet, at least from my side, from the beef feedlot side, most of the fundamental studies that went into developing our recommendations for requirements for nutrients are from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. And there's been work since then, but maybe not as much. So what does it look like on your side? What does it look like on the cow side?
0: Yeah, I'll say that to me, that's one of the most concerning things as I, um, as I think about the future of cow-calf nutrition, I mean, it's great. I feel like I have a, um, I have work to do and I'm never going to run out of work to do, but I think that one of the bad things is, is that we haven't gotten to ask a lot of the same questions. And there's probably that you are in the feedlot I'm I'm saying on the cow-calf side. And that doesn't mean that there hasn't been great work done. There definitely is a lot of great stuff that came out of, of the 90s and, you know, the 2000s up to now. But a lot of the people that I think of as really being at the top of that game, you know, the Harvey Freelys and, and um, there's certainly lots of others, but he's one of my favorites. You know, they're retiring or they've retired. Um, unfortunately, we lost quite a few to administration or industry like Brett Hess. I loved working with him. And, and you know, it turns out that a lot of times nutritionists actually do move into those things we have the opportunities right um and so i worry because i i don't know if there's enough of us right now that have been trained to you know be whole cow people and not just think about the ovary or the uterus or just think about the rumen um but it's probably not even just a how many of us it's also funding i think you know, I was definitely discouraged by some people during my training from being a cow calf nutritionist because of the lack of funding and the difficulty of, of getting tenure and things like that. Um, I'll say that you know I probably have had more of an appetite for going after federal funding because I was trained really well at NDsu to do that. But there's not a lot of industry money outside of mineral and vitamin supplementation, which there's not as much on our side as there is on yours anyway, but you know, the rest is often product testing. And I think it's difficult with just product testing dollars to learn the things we need to, to make the cow focus chapters of the NRC better. And so, um, you know, we used to rely a lot on USDA centers like Mark and Fort Keogh to do that work. I think they're still doing some of it, but things have changed there too. And so I hope that One way or another, we can find more money and more people who are interested and who want to stay in it so that we can answer some of these questions. We shouldn't continue to use only cows from the 60s, 70s, 80s in our models. Um, We don't really understand enough about cows. And the only way to know is to ask the questions.
1: Yeah, I think you laid out so many of the challenges there really nicely, Allison, um, especially thinking, you know, you really can't separate repro and nutrition as you think about cows. So I think that's a really, really good point. Um, The other one would be, you know, how do we challenge maybe our industry friends who are supporting academic researchers to say, you know, what would it cost to add a little piece of more fundamental research into this, right? Um, Or... Is there, you know, FR kind of opportunity for something like this? Or as we have more states that have extra beef checkoff dollars, you know, that's gonna be some of the production opportunities for things like that. But even then, sometimes it's hard for them to see like, you know, wait, you wanna kill calves when they're born because you wanna understand the effects of what we did to mom. Like it's, it's hard sometimes for them to understand why you need to make some of those kind of sacrifices and do this really more fundamental work so that we can make better recommendations to them, right? Like maybe we can say, yeah, you can really like go really lean on your diet until this month of gestation. But then from this point on, there's no skimping, right? Because you're going to pay for that from the, you know, this point forward. But the cow is not the same. You know, Travis mentioned that The dairy genetics of a Holstein in the 1970 in terms of milk yield is similar to what a beef cow can produce today. And I think that that's just a fascinating thing to try to wrap your head around.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many um, good things that you said there. I'll say that, and I I mean, starting with the end, I think that uh, we don't really, we don't really account for probably um, nutrient requirements of lactation particularly well um, the NRC, you know, milk yield curve that we see is, is probably pretty crazy. It's probably not really real, but also, you know, on the same side, um, and I, I think Travis and I disagree on how much milk is a good thing, but we don't understand what a calf needs. The beef NRC disregards calves from birth to weaning, like literally acts as if they don't exist. And so, if that's the case, you know, we like to make a lot of conjectures and there's some data on it for sure. But, you know, if we don't really know what's in milk, cause we don't do a great job of measuring it. And we don't really know how many nutrients it takes to make it. And we don't really know how much calves need. And we don't really understand how much calves graze on their own. And fall calves are different from spring calves cause they have different opportunity and blah, blah. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. Um, I do think your comment about how do we get other money? That's something I keep thinking about more and more. You know, now that I graduate from the just try to get through phase of, of early career to more mid. Um, you know, I, I hope that that in the future we can come up with ways to get funding. I guess I was trained to just be really creative and to save everything you can and try to do things on a shoestring. Um I want to give a shout out to the Illinois Beef Association because with their extra checkoff dollars, they have done exactly that. They paid for our second um, second parity study that I mentioned, which I should come back to because I forgot to say the great, great part of that. But um, I, I think one of the things people often forget on the cow side is that we can do a lot of things for relatively small amounts of money. Many times it's labor and it's just enough money. Enough money to keep our our skin in the game. Enough money to pay for the labor. A lot of you know what I do. Labor is the biggest cost because the cows already belong here. In general, you know, people are glad that we took over calving because things don't die. Um, but I have to pay somebody to watch. You know, you, you can't you can't have people watch cows and heifers twenty four hours a day for nothing. I mean. I don't pay myself, so that's why I pick up the extra shifts. But um, I think that's, uh, those are some of the things that are, are kind of hard to get through. And, and maybe university systems have made that more difficult too. It's a little harder to bring in massive dollars when you're a cow person. And so I know that sometimes I like to point out look, I can get a lot done for this. You know, half a million dollars maybe doesn't get you anywhere with certain molecular techniques, but with my work, half a million dollars can, you know, do a lot of a lot of damage. And so um, that's some of the, I guess, ways that, that we try to do it.
1: Right. So I really want to go down a rabbit hole of dairy beef calves now, since you just said all the things we don't know about beef calves from birth to weaning. And I've been like, dude, it should be on a cow. That's why <laughs> we don't have to figure this out. I don't think we have time for that. So maybe we might have to think about that for a future episode. I wanna give you the chance to go back to your second parody discussion.
0: Awesome. So in that study, like I said, we we only nutrient restricted those the one group of females for, you know, four months in late pregnancy, the last four months of pregnancy. And again, those were fed individually then during that restriction phase, but also for the 150 days after capping. So the first 150 days of lactation, they bred back quite well. And I think it's because we knew we were meeting at least what we thought were lactation requirements. I'm not sure if we quite fed them enough, but we got them at least to, to what, you know, the current NASM would say with a little bit of help from freely equation. So, um, long story short, after that, they, they at weaning hadn't actually come back together on body condition score and body weight. And I was surprised by that because I really thought by weaning, we could get them back. And then by the time they calved the second calf, they still hadn't come back by the time we weaned their second calf, they still hadn't come back. So it turns out that throughout really the second pregnancy, we these females were maintaining themselves at about, you know, half to three quarters of a body condition score lower. And then about the same, actually a little bit more weight, kind of depends on where you're at, but I want to say it was like 60 to hundred pounds during that time. Um, and so, you know, we're asking the question, small data set, obviously, but did they change their mature body weight? Did they change their muscling? Um, We don't think they changed frame score, but we actually didn't measure frame score in these. We did in the second study and we found that shoulder height actually wasn't reduced in our nutrient restricted females. And so, you know, we don't think that that happened, but um, you know, did they change their flushing ability? Did they change their metabolic step point or, a body condition score set point. Um, we didn't have the the funding or the time really to follow them into the third parity. So um, we didn't do much, but we did go ahead and body condition score at, at breeding um, this last fall. And that would have been breeding for their fourth parity. And we found that they still were like four tenths of a body condition score lower. And, uh, you know, I don't exactly know what that means. Again, small group of animals. I'll say that they um, they had about as much heterosis as any animals we would currently use because they were out of a Hereford bull and some Angus cows. Um, they did mobilize you know, a lot of fat during their late pregnancy, but I keep wondering what that means long-term. And I think that one of the things it can tell us is we should consider heifer development to really... Be much longer than we do. It's not just until we breed them, you know. Especially if we think they're only at sixty or sixty-five percent of their mature weight, they're making up a lot of ground while they're pregnant. And you know, my assumption is that if we mess that up, we could change them forever. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. I don't know. This is a pretty fertile group of animals, but I really want to do it again with like four (laughs) hundred and see what happens.
1: Have you ever looked at like osteocalcin, like a bone synthesis marker, or any kind of like markers of like bone mobilization or degradation or maybe cartilage, something you can measure in circulation?
0: Yeah, we have a lot of blood samples. And I'll say, you know, so far we really stuck with, um, you know, everything that was in the grant. But now we're kind of to a point of what else do we ask? And that's something that we've talked about a little bit is what's going on Um, from the bone standpoint. I'll say that in our, in their calves, while they were um, while they were pre-weaning, I didn't mention how much milk their milk production was 15% less than control, and those calves actually had less bone growth through very gross measures of just height, length, you know, bone circumference, bone length. But I'll say that by day 63 of age, those calves even diverged in bone, and so I also think that sometimes we we discount how much we're changing skeletal measures with nutrient restriction, um, because I was surprised by that. I, their body weights diverged by 42 days. That didn't shock me, made sense with the amount of milk weaning weight and milk were quite similar in their percent difference. But, um, the fact that, that we probably really slowed their skeletal growth has just kind of stuck in my brain and made me want to ask a lot of other questions.
1: Yeah. I love your comment too, about thinking about heifer development further than here you go. She's bred three months. (laughs) Like, you know, she's, she's ready to be one of the herd now, because when we see things like, like something kind of really relatively rare, like manganese deficiency, if it's heifers and young cows and more mature cows all in the same field together, it's almost always the heifers and maybe the two and, you know, the the two and three-year-olds and stuff too, that are the ones who are likely to have it. And the older cows are like, whatever. So i be really curious to know if like down the road, if you were able to do this again with bigger cow numbers and stuff, would you see some real like longevity impacts of, you know, so sometimes producers want to make that gut check decision of like, well, I just need to pull back on everything. But am I going to suffer wholeheartedly from that in five or six years when all of a sudden I have a big turnover in these cows that I've put so much money into making?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think, um, I think that's, That's the probably the biggest question, and and the other thing that I'll mention is that you know, for any producers that are listening or people who are like, "Well, calves weren't smaller at birth; they all got bred." I mean, who cares? Um, I'll say that we were feeding those nutrient restricted females very hard individually, and it's pretty rare in the real world that you're going to just flip the switch and go from, you know, not eating enough during pregnancy to all of a sudden having plenty of nutrients. And especially if those heifers are with cows, I mean, you know, heifers, they're just not high enough in the pecking order yet. They're, they're not big enough that I, I think that, you know, in the real world, we would have had much poorer pregnancy rates in those nutrient restricted heifers, just like in the real world, especially if they'd been born in the spring, this was a fall calving study. Um, those calves would have been less likely to survive because, they were less vigorous. If they'd been cold, they had less, less colostrum, less milk. You know, we didn't see much in the way of health, um, you know, concerns. Morbidity was pretty much nothing. But I think that that was a situation of overmanaged research animals. We needed them to live in the real world. I don't think that's what would have happened. And so I think those are some some pretty big implications along with lower weaning weight and potentially altered, you know, heifers forever.
1: And I think this is such a great example of why, you know, the really intensive studies belong at the universities. You know, they this is where things start. You start to refine your questions, figure out what kind of samples you need in the future, right? And then you have the opportunity to kind of leverage that up and upscale it. But the fundamental work still takes so much effort and it takes a team, especially for cow stuff, right? Like you mentioned all your labor challenges and stuff. So I think this is a really cool avenue of research that you guys are are chasing down there.
0: Thanks. I I appreciate it. And I'll say that to me, that's one of the most fun things about it. You know, I've always liked applied work and I definitely want to think about how does this, uh, how does anything we do affect a cow-calf producer or cow or calf themselves? But to me, I want to know enough more about how it's happening that I think this, this really intensive work where everything stays alive is my favorite because, you know, we can just ask lots and lots of questions and... Um, Let somebody else do the really basic work. Maybe let somebody else apply it, like you said. But um, I really love that gray area.
1: It's time for our famous three. All right. So we've reached the end of our time together and it's time for our famous three questions. So are you ready for this? Sure. Okay. So question number one, what's your favorite beef resource?
0: Well, first, I don't know if anybody's done a shout out for these, but I feel like I should. Um, American Society of Animal Science meetings and publications are, you know, really important to me, important to you. I think important to probably a lot of people listening. So definitely always love going to those meetings, especially Midwest and National Animal Science meetings, and then the Journal of Animal Science and Translational Animal Science. But as I thought about it yesterday when I reviewed these questions, um, probably one of my favorite resources is kind of a cop-out in that it's Google. And it's because... A lot of the stuff we do on the cow side, we don't really know what we're looking for. We, we don't know that someone did this in 1920 and found something kind of interesting. Or we're not sure if we're looking for a vet resource, an extension resource, something popular press. And I love that Google will find really random things for me, like an, there's this 1840 research report from a lord in you know England that he measured 800 cows' gestation lengths and reported it. And it's one of my favorite things I've ever read. But, you know, Google helped me track that down. And so I'll say that I'm a big Google scholar and general Google fan. I was not sponsored, but I'd be happy to be sponsored if anyone from Google <laughs> is listening.
1: Dear Google, I'll leave Allison's email in the liner notes for the show. <laughs> yeah. Okay, question number two. What is a book not related to beef that you're currently reading? Or if it's not a book, you can do a Netflix or we've heard, had all kinds of things.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I'll say that it's been basketball season. I'm a, I'm a big Michigan State Spartan fan. And so during basketball season, I'm really bad at doing anything else. Um, but I did recently listen to the book, um, The Exceptions, which is about um, women scientists at MIT and kind of their push for better resources, better pay. Um, and it was excellent. It's long. And so I was really glad I listened to it. Um, I love audiobooks personally, but I'd encourage you and maybe especially any other women listening. I, th- I thought it was just really good.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Last question. What's a trait of someone, you know, that has helped make them successful.
0: So as I kept thinking about this, I came up with a million different choices, but, um, I ended up landing on one that I think a lot of people that I've been lucky to be raised by my parents um, be trained by um, have had is that if they thought something was worthwhile, they just stuck with it and they found a way to make it work. And I'll say that both in life and definitely in the kind of research we do, it's, it's a philosophy I really try to use and that, you know, a lot of people tell us things aren't doable and, I try to just tell them nicely, sometimes not very nicely with plenty of four letter words to go away and just let me do it. And if it, if it can be done, I'll figure it out. And so I really appreciate that, you know, a lot of those people who really formed me said, well, it might be a little harder work than you thought, or you might have to be a little more creative than you thought, but you can find a way because I feel like usually we can find a way.
1: Yeah. That's so great. And how hard is that to help like our graduate students that we mentor to like, think about that too. Have you, um, have you read Angela Duckworth's book, Grit?
0: Actually, I think it's one of the audiobooks that I'm partway through. I have a really bad habit of having like a stack of books that I've started reading and a stack of audiobooks I've started listening to that I don't finish, but I need to pick it back up on my next drive.
1: Yeah. So she talks, she defines grit as, um, passion and perseverance. And I think that when you think about it from those two perspectives, we can think about the recipe to help our graduate students develop passion and perseverance for their their research topic and stuff, and ultimately how that can lead to grit. But yeah, I think that's a great, I would totally agree, grit and resilience is, a, is an awesome trait. Definitely. Well, awesome. Allison. this has been such a great um, opportunity to chat with you here today. Thanks for being with us on the podcast. Thanks for having me.